the true road to protecting America's interests in space is ensuring that we have an industrial base, a logistic system in space, and off-Earth supply chain that's so capable that it's inconceivable for them to want to go up against a juggernaut that could mobilize that level of power. Welcome to the Space Power Podcast, where we interview strategists and defense experts on national power in space. I'm Jason Joel, and with me is Josh Gonzalez. We are honored today to be joined by Peter Gerritsen, retired Air Force officer and currently a senior fellow in defense studies at the American Foreign Policy Council, where he co-directs the organization's Space Policy Initiative. Prior to joining AFPC, Peter spent over a decade as a transformational strategist for the Department of the Air Force. He served as a strategy and policy advisor for the Chief of Staff of the Air Force, as Division Chief of Irregular Warfare Strategy Plans and Policy, and as the Chief of Future Technology Branch of Air Force Strategic Planning. He is the co-author of the book, Scramble for the Skies, The Great Power Competition to Control the Resources of Outer Space, and is the co-author of the upcoming book, The Next Space Race, A Blueprint for American Primacy. He's the author of numerous works on space power, many of which we will discuss here today. Peter, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're excited to have you here. Your podcast, Space Strategy, was a bit of an inspiration for us starting this, and so just really excited to be able to talk to you today. So you've written extensively on space, a wide range of topics, with much of your work revolving around space resources. So we wanted to lay the foundation for the rest of our discussion here. When you're talking space resources, what is that to you? So, I mean, you could, of course, draw it larger than the way we talk about it in the book, but in the book, we're basically talking about energy and material resources. So we're talking about sunlight, we're talking about things that can be turned into fusion energy, and we're talking mainly about uh, mineral resources. So metals and silicates and things that you can get from moons and asteroids uh, and the, the small bodies of the... Uh, inner solar system. Okay, so those mineral resources, do you think that will be kind of the first thing that humankind will be looking to extract? Or where do you see our kind of first extraction of space resources starting? So when we talk about extractive industries, I think that the very first use cases are going to probably be supporting, the, uh, supporting NASA and their Artemis program. So you'll have corporations that are partners with NASA who will be attempting to get oxygen uh, and or water from the lunar regolith as, uh, as sort of the initial thing. And in the process of making oxygen, you're going to be able to pull out uh, iron, you're going to be able to pull out titanium, you're going to be able to pull out other metals. And to the extent that we have a policy that is uh, forward-leaning, we can use government dollars to build a much broader uh, industry. That process of using in situ resources is, you know, is called in situ resource utilization or ISRU. And that is uh, clearly part of where the United States uh, policy wants to push things. 
Yeah, it's interesting you talk about commercial companies. I recently was back in Pittsburgh uh, where the company Astrobot Astrobotics is based and uh, had an opportunity to take a tour of their facility and see their Peregrine Lander, which is scheduled to launch, launch on the first Vulcan Centaur sometime this spring. Um, but one of the things they're going to be doing, their commercial company that uh, has NASA and many other customers, um, they're going to deliver a rover that's going to go around and use visual and other spectral imaging to look for water at their proposed landing site. So it was super exciting to see that and super exciting to know that those commercial companies are starting to be used for things on other celestial bodies. Shifting gears a little bit, in the future, these resources are certainly going to affect geopolitical competition. Has that happened yet? Are we seeing space resources affecting competition between states here on Earth today? Absolutely. You know, um, you know one of the points I, I make when I present on the book is that it isn't the, the reality today, but the expectation of what's going to happen that drives politics. And if you look at it, you know, in large part, both the entire current moon program, the Artemis program, and the Space Force are fundamentally driven by a concern about space resources. So you can see very clearly in the speeches of the Vice President and the speeches of the Commerce Secretary about their concerns about the PRC's access to the moon. And it's immediately following Chang'e 4's landing on the moon that you see a step up in both civil and military space. So, you know, while many people miss this fundamental connection, when you look at the highest levels, at least, you know, in, the, in some of the motivations within the White House and cabinet of the last administration, space resources, the ex long-term expectation of space resources was what is already created on the order of $80 billion in NASA funding and an annual budget of 25 billion, you know, for the U.S. Space Force, uh, as distinct from what it had always done before as Air Force Space Command. Yeah, you mentioned the Chang'e 4 landing. For our listeners, that was the Chinese lunar lander that landed on the far side of the moon. What is the significance of that? Well, I think the significance of that particular landing was a showcase of Chinese competence to access something um, that they had never been able to access before, and in fact, access a region of the moon that even we had not accessed. So that was a very complicated mission in that it required a, uh, a relay satellite in the, at the Earth-Moon Lagrange point, a point on the far side of the moon, to relay back. Um, and it required them to be able to you know, land and, and do all the things that they did on the surface. And the Chinese talking points always emphasize their interest in using the moon as a supplier of, of energy for sustainable development uh, and accessing it for lunar industrialization. And so while that you know, has not been appreciated by uh, much of the public uh, or you know, really within the Space Force uh, at large, Certainly, there were folks that were advising uh, the administration at the highest levels that this was going to be the future of space development and the United States needed to get its head in the game. So speaking specifically to the Space Force, you've established that resources will be important for geopolitical competition and that the creation of the Space Force is a reflection of that. What should the Space Force, what's the next step for the Space Force to help develop this resource utilization? Sure. So, you know, I think starting with, 
you know, why is important. So the Space Force exists in law to uh, protect America's interests in space. And so when you think about what are America's interests in space, both near term and long term, you would have to think that access to a billion times the resources that exist on Earth would be pretty important. And you would have to also think that protecting America's interest in space would uh, be ensuring uh, that we have access, that we're developing that um, preferentially to support U.S. interests. And so I think it comes down to basically two major muscle movements. One is, of course, signaling, providing confidence to the civil and commercial sectors that the Space Force is going to be there, that it will protect those lines of commerce, that it will support, will provide that, uh, that security presence that enables us to develop the space economy. And I think second is to play the role that militaries have always played in the development of, of a domain and the development of new technologies, uh, particularly dual-use technologies. So if you look at the history of the U.S. military, we've used them for exploration like Lewis and Clark. We've used them to create infrastructure such as the Army Corps of Engineers and our, and our basic canals and our transcontinental railroads and the, Pan uh, and the uh, Panama Canal and in the uh, siting and construction of our national highway system. So as well as what uh, the Air Force did in terms of facilitating the creation of jet transportation and large intercontinental transport, um, and the Navy in terms of facilitating an entire uh, en route structure, port structure, uh, shipyards, seafaring, uh, airfaring uh, generally. So the Space Force is very specifically being called upon to play that historical military role of assisting in the development of, a, uh, of an infrastructure and commercial domain. And how does the Space Force do that? Well, first of all, the Space Force needs to have a vision, uh, both of, of what a developed uh, space domain looks like and, and be able to articulate its role in that. And secondly, it needs to realize that in protecting America's interests, that development is not um, you know, what economists might call an externality, right? That's not somebody else's problem. That is absolutely the Space Force's problem to think through this. And even if they're not the one primarily executing it, even if it's NASA who is helping develop the moon or commerce or private industry, the Space Force cannot escape the fundamental responsibility to protect America's interest in space. And therefore, they have to be the architects and designers of the space uh, uh, architecture and infrastructure that maximizes US power. And so the Space Force needs to be very deliberate about choosing the technologies and allocating its defense dollars such that it builds a scalable space industry at the same time that it takes care of its own needs. And, and what that basically means is that whenever the Space Force is thinking about designing a system, it can't just look in a silo and say, how does this benefit me? It has to make sure that it's not putting America in what we, we would call a strategic cul-de-sac by building something that is not going to scale, that's going to require other dollars somewhere else to achieve the more important policy goals of being the biggest, the firstest with the mostest. They have to be conscious about setting up the chessboard to win any potential battle as well as just focusing on the battles.
So just looking at where we're at today with commercial companies driving a lot of space activity, if I'm summarizing you correctly, the Space Force won't be the biggest player in future space, but they need to have, they need to be the ones setting up the architecture to allow that commercialization in the future. Well, what I would say is that, you know, when you look at a concentration of money that can affect the industrial development and uh, positioning in, in strategic locations in space, the Space Force is really the big dog, right? Its budget now is actually larger than NASA's. Um, how it spends its dollars matters. And so while in aggregate, the commercial space industry is going to be larger, what the Space Force has is this amazing carrot to lead companies to put money in places that contribute to U.S. national security. And so the Space Force has to be very clever about how it puts those breadcrumbs down. Because sure, you, you will, I'll give an example. The, the Space Force, of course, has interests in rendezvous and proximity operations. It has an interest in making sure that the orbital regime is safe for U.S. Department of Defense assets. And so it might be spending in, in space uh, servicing, in space refueling, um, uh, debris to orbit. Once it does that, it retires a lot of the technical risks and proves that things can be done such that the commercial industry can come behind and create an entire service industry for those broadly. So those types of investments have far-reaching potential benefits. The same for refueling. And so, and the same potentially for what the, what the Space Force is doing through Air Force Research Lab on space-based solar power. So it's always, whenever the Space Force has an eye to scalability and uses its near-term needs to push things that enable the commercial industry to scale, in my view, it is protecting American interests. Yeah, that's a, that's a good kind of summarization of, of what the Space Force should be doing. I think a key thing to highlight on there is Space Force needs to spend its dollars smartly. We've heard a few general officers in the Space Force, and I won't mention any names, who have recently said a number of times, that's not my problem. Not that specifically, but when talking about different issues, I've heard them say a lot, that's not my problem, or that's not my job. How does the Space Force balance spending its dollars, doing the right things, investing in the right technologies today against accepting all of the responsibilities? You know, Because at some point they do have to say, either that's not my job or that's not where we need to spend our money right now. How do they balance that? Well, first of all, this is a, a perennial and very tough problem to balance, uh, you know, your near-term readiness and capability against long-term investments. And it's something that every service has to face and balance. Um, and certainly the Space Force has a lot of near-term um, problems. You know, the, the world is quite volatile now uh, for which it needs to be uh, putting a, a fair amount of focus. But... Let me react first to the, that's not my job. It's absolutely your job. It is absolutely your job. Read what the law says. It says protect American interests in space. It doesn't say protect DOD satellites in space. It is very clear that the mandate is very broad. Now, within that, 
you have limited resources at the time. But part of the reason why you have limited resources is because you have a vision that's too small for America. If you spend your time providing the vision of what you see as the potential benefits of investment and what your role is in that, the resources are going to flow. And this was the bet of those of us who advocated for the Space Force initially. It was our bet that once the Space Force was liberated from the Air Force and could be looked at as its own thing and managed by Congress, more resources would flow. And we were absolutely correct. More resources did flow. And to the extent that the Space Force is able to provide a value proposition that is not just, hey, I'm another bill to pay, but here's something that's going to contribute to the, to the much better lives of your children and grandchildren, even more resources are going to flow. So you can use time as a tool, you know, as a, as a weapon. Um, and so, you know, one of the things when we talk about the it's not my job is an, it's an exaggeration of how much is being asked um, of the Space Force in these things. So the, you know, when we talk about like blue water space power, my formula is really simple. It needs to be 50% of Space Force leadership talking points. The rhetoric, the posture statements, the engagement with the public, 50% of what they talk about can be supporting the joint force. But the other half of the dual mandate needs to be the blue water vision, the looking out vision. Now, that doesn't mean that that translates into 50% of your budget or planning. Planning, you should be spending about 5% of your total planning effort. Not a lot, not, you know, 95% is still on, you know, supporting the joint force, near-term stuff. But a, but a small part, 5% needs to be in creating future concepts of operations, creating requirements for cislunar, creating the things that are going to sustain and build your intellectual capacity and your ability to adapt, your ability to not be surprised. And then about 1% of your budget actually needs to be devoted to blue blue water space power to looking out space power and that's actually a tiny amount but that's okay because the future is urgent today because it's like investing in your ira or your kids college right you don't need to spend a lot of your monthly income but you need to spend a little bit over time because it compounds an in interest so you know what is being asked of the space force is to rhetorically put its head in the game to do a little bit of advanced planning so that America has the confidence that the Space Force is not going to be caught flat-footed and is ahead of, the, ahead of the ball, right? Is going to where the puck is going. And they need to be spending enough, which is not a lot, of their budget starting to develop capabilities and competence that will mature over 10, 20, 30 years to become important. And you can't neglect those now because of the effects of compound interest and because our, because our adversaries are spending in those domains. And yes, their amount of spending is also small, but it's going to compound. And we don't want to be late to something that is so immensely consequential. It's a, it's a helpful way of viewing where the Space Force should be um, applying its resources for the future. I think just from my perspective, and I've not served at the Pentagon or in any policy jobs, but it seems like the, the biggest piece that's missing right now is the 
talking points because I'm sure there's investments and some planning going on, but most of the talk we hear today tends to be more terrestrially focused and support to the warfighter. I'd like to circle back a little bit towards uh, space resource exploitation. You seem to have a vision that's grander and slightly more expansive than, than many people today. What could keep our heavy investment if we were to start investing in space resource exploitation? What could keep that investment from generating the return that you and many others think it will? So at this point, we know a lot about the potential technology that we would need to exploit space resources, which isn't to say that it's a solved problem, but it doesn't require new physics. You know, we, we've been mining on Earth for a long time. We know a lot about the environment on the moon. We know a lot about the environment on asteroids. We know a lot about what the materials are out there. And so the question comes down to the organization of capital and the organization of policy and the ability to, uh, to make available um, early capital in order to jumpstart something, to create early profitable uh, businesses. So let me give you a, uh, an example um, that, that you may have heard of. So when, when aviation was young, um, we did not have, uh, it, it was uneconomical to do passenger travel. It was just too expensive. And, uh, but people thought we could. They were just like, you know, if we can get to a certain scale, if we can have certain guaranteed routes, we'll be able to start passenger travel. And so the, the would-be airlines convinced the U.S. Postal Service to fund airmail and give away uh, very stable contracts for airmail routes that created the initial airlines that then gave them the, the basic revenue from the government that they needed to jumpstart passenger travel. And of course now, passenger travel is huge and self-sustaining, you know, and the amount that the Postal Service contributes to aviation is probably tiny in comparison. Space-based solar power is one of those areas that we could really help push forward into the future. So in my mind, I picture electrifying Humvees and all these things that we're using on the ground that are relying on fossil fuels currently. And instead, we build this military space-based solar power system that is directly feeding into our radios and our computers and our Humvees and everything else and providing constant trickle charges all around the globe and how that could be such a huge force multiplier. And then we take that system and we can slowly parse it out to the rest of the world. Similar to what we did with GPS, it started as a military program and then moved into a global, everybody's relying on it kind of system. Do you see the development of space-based solar power in a similar way? Because I know you're very passionate about it. So what's your vision of how we expand solar power? Well, I am certainly a huge advocate of space-based solar power. And just in case anybody doesn't know what it is, we're talking about innovating around the problem of solar power on the ground. So because the earth spins half of the day, you're in the shadow of the sun and you get no sunlight. And for about, you know, another quarter or more of the day, you're in dawn or dusk where you're getting very little sunlight. And then if you're in many locations on the earth, high latitude locations, you're getting uh, 
less sunlight and in winter you're getting very very little sunlight so the earth is bathed in this you know amazing amount of sunlight of which you know what actually reaches the ground averaged over time is just a fraction of that so what if you could just capture that sunlight in space where it's 24 hours and way more abundant than on earth and beam it to the ground well, this is exciting because it would allow 24-hour power and it scales to all global demand. Um, and in fact, it could scale to all global demand. If we had 12 billion people on Earth and they all had U.S. lifestyles six times over, just using the, the orbital resources uh, in uh, geostationary orbit to, to place the satellites there. So something that could actually fix climate change um, concerns that could provide 24-hour industrial power that could not have any pollutants um, and doesn't require cooling water on Earth or and about a fifth the amount of land of, of, uh, of ground solar seems like it would be pretty exciting. And a point of fact, um, after the Pentagon study group talked about how exciting that was in 2008, uh, the Chinese started their program, which they've been steadily working toward and have plans to test uh, initial power beaming in low Earth orbit and on their space station in the near term, and a significant demonstrator in low Earth orbit in 2028 and in geostationary orbit in 2030. Um, and we're talking about things that have exceptionally large apertures and hundreds of kilowatts to megawatts of power just in the test phase moving up to gigawatts of things that are assembled um, that are 8,000 metric ton stations. If you can build an 8,000 metric ton station, you're definitely a second generation space industrial power, right? You can do things that the U.S. Space Force can't even dream about today. There's nobody in the U.S. Space, you know, this U.S. Space Force cannot build a kilometer scale RF aperture, can't collect a megawatt of power. Um, and so just Plainly, um, a country that can build a solar power satellite will crush a space force of a country that can't do that. Logistically, power-wise, it, it's just a, it's a different level. Now, does could the DoD play an important role in helping facilitate this? Well, you know, as we've talked about, when you're talking about building something at scale or for a commercial market, that's definitely something that's handed over to private industry. But as with GPS, um, which was our first global utility, the, the DoD played an especially important role in catalyzing the underlying technology for that. And here too, you know, we have seen, we are seeing right now, uh, pioneering work by the Naval Research Lab uh, that was flown on the X-37B. Uh, and pioneering work by Air Force Research Lab on, uh, on the space solar power incremental uh, demonstration and research problem, the SPIDER uh, program, that uh, I think will fly Arachne in, in 2025. That's, that's been really, really important. In fact, it's sort of catalyzed a new global space race where now we've got entirely new players in the UK, in Saudi Arabia, in the European Space Agency. Um, Japan's been a longtime player, uh, but Korea has now joined, Australia is interested. So now it's a question of can we, can we keep up? 
Um, and is there the, the will and desire within the Space Force to further facilitate uh, these efforts? I, I hope they will, because I think the, the benefits are not merely in having a, uh, a military, um, an initial military system to a forward operating base. I think that would be a fabulous demonstration and something that I think would, I think once you demonstrated that it would eclipse so quickly into the private sector, uh, because for the most part, people are just waiting to see uh, a, a demonstration that it can be done before the, the capital moves. There are already like three or four startups that are interested. And now that the European Space Agency is putting 60 million over the next three years, uh, Airbus and other major players are, are now moving into this space. So there's a real chance that the United States will get way behind on space solar power because we have no national policy. And the DoD efforts are, are not purpose-built to scale to, uh, to get to net zero, right? That, isn't, that just isn't their thing. They already have sort of played the role that you've suggested in, in catalyzing. How much farther they can take it, I think, will depend um, on whether or not they're able to secure resources for follow-on activity and whether or not the Space Force leadership continues to champion that, um, which depends, you know, you know, for instance, the Space Force has put itself in a, a terribly awkward position because in three years, they've developed no forward-thinking requirements or concept of operations, right? So they have nothing on paper that's driving them to high power, to um, advanced propulsion, to cislunar concepts of operations. And so without you know, validated joint requirements that they can champion to Congress and make a case of, you know, this is why we need this. They, there's no thinking about uh, in-space resources. And it's particularly awkward in my view because several years ago when it was still Air Force Space Command, they, they started doing phenomenal work on Space Futures Workshop and State of the Space Industrial Base and that like none of that has translated into posture statements. None of that has translated into the talking points of the CSAF or, uh, sorry, of the CSO or the SECAF. It's all sort of islanded and has, has not transitioned into concepts, concepts of operation, formal requirements. And so, you know, now there are, there's clear interest in Congress in funding some of these bigger long-term ideas, but the Space Force doesn't have the internal paperwork or the internal messaging to be able to support that fast movement. I can speak from experience. When Department of Homeland Security was founded in 2003, it took the department a number of years to kind of get their feet underneath them and, and start moving in a, in a unified direction. So hopefully the, the Space Force can can find their feet and, and start producing some of those documents soon. So transitioning a little bit, uh, you've got an upcoming book. It's released at the end of March, correct? Mid-March. Mid-March. Okay. Probably around the time we're releasing this episode. So where can listeners find that and what should they expect from it? Well, you can find it on Amazon. Uh, the title is The Next Space Brace, a blueprint for uh, American primacy in space. And, uh, and fundamentally, the book is an examination of 
great power competition between the United States and China. There's a bit of a net assessment. What are they focusing on? What are we focusing on? What are the things that are going to matter? Uh, where should we be investing? You know, what are the areas of competition that are going to matter to great power competition? What ought to be the focus of the Space Force? What ought to be the focus of NASA and commerce? Um, and so, you know, whereas Scramble for the Skies, you know, is really a, hopefully a book that will stand the test of time for quite a long while and, uh, and make a contribution to, to space power and, and international relations theory. This book is really targeted at what should the United States do? What ought to be policy that is forward thinking um, from the perspective of industrial power and uh, great power competition? So let me draw another distinction for you, perhaps. A lot of people, when they, when they uh, particularly folks that have been associated with the Air Force, tend to have a vision, I might also point out an, an ahistorical vision, right? It's a fairly recent development after we sort of got rid of uh, Strategic Air Command and you saw sort of the rise of the, of the fighter generals. Um, you saw an, a, a very unstrategic Air Force, a very, a very tactically minded Air Force that, that was not concerned in the same way that Mitchell and Hap Harnold were about creating comprehensive national air fairing and, and air power. Um, it really devolved into this very uh, tell me where to drop, you know, warheads on foreheads type of mentality. And when people think about space power, they imagine that the Space Force needs to have an origin story and demonstrations like in the Air Force, there was this recent article about like the Space Force looking for an Ostfriesland moment. Um, but this is really an air power mindset. The Space Force has always had more in common with the Navy and the Coast Guard in terms of its, of its intellectual origins, that this is something that provides stability for a domain, that provides development of a domain, that enables commerce in a domain, and that's a very different kind of national power. It's one that's concerned with countering coercion, ensuring access, building interests and in overseas possessions or interests of, of where you can go. And is fundamentally has as its aim a, a theory of victory that is a political theory of victory, right? So the reason why I talked about the Air Force mindset, the Air Force mindset has a a military theory of victory. You know, this is how you hurt the other guy. This is how you win a battle. But if you look at like Mahanian style naval thinking, right? It isn't so much the battle. It is ensuring that you are able to project US interests, commercial interests over time, secure them and constrict them if you need, you know, the other uh, the other guy via a blockade or something, right? But it's less about a military theory of victory and it's more about a political theory of victory. How do you be and maintain yourself as the hegemon? How do you rule the seas for commerce? How do you rule the black ocean for commerce? Part of that will be war fighting. Part of that will be supporting coastal shore operations. But the, but the largest thing, the thing that you're always doing in peacetime 
is extending and promoting commerce. And that's how you are the leading nation. We don't want to be the Soviet Union where we're spending tons of money on military, uh, on our military, and our economy can't keep up with that, and so we collapse. The true road to protecting America's interests in space is ensuring that we have an industrial base, a logistic system in space, an off-Earth supply chain that's so capable that an adversary would just be, it's inconceivable for them to want to go up against a juggernaut that could mobilize that level of power. Well, it sounds fascinating, and I, I hope our listeners get a chance to pick up your book. Uh, to start wrapping things up here, we've got a few questions we like to ask all our guests. To further advanced space power theory, what topics need to be explored or developed? Well, I think we talked about some of them, right? I'd like to see, you know, an explicit development of how you, how you would develop space and what is the exact interaction, you know, what is, there's a theory of causing security and I've laid out sort of the skeleton outlines. You cause security by having the largest industry and uh, logistics chain um, that then you have as a war chest to be able to mobilize, to be able to use and outlast or potentially coerce your opponent. But that also creates a wealth generating platform for your partners. It uplifts you. Um, you're not exhausting yourself. So how do you create that? And we talked a little bit about like, how can this, how can the Space Force do this? But there's a lot of really applied work that I, that I think uh, could be done when we think about space power theory, there's a lot of things to be mined in where the space enthusiast and advocacy community has gone because once you start producing things in space that have never existed before, like solar power satellites, like significant numbers of people in, um, in free-flying or planetary locations, that fundamentally changes your national interests and your concerns. And so we need to start anticipating those. I would say too, I mean, it, it, as soon as something happens that people think is science fiction, it opens the possibilities because what was previously considered science fiction may not be fiction anymore. And it, it opens people's minds to what could be once one of the, you know, it's a waterfall. Thank you for that opening, because I will say that, you know, one of my other cultural concerns, it's been sort of a less than embracing, keep at arm's length um, attitude towards science fiction. And I think that is absolutely harmful uh, to Guardian culture. I think that if we want to have far thinking, foresighted, mentally flexible Guardians, they need to be reading science, particularly space science fiction, particularly hard space science fiction, uh, because most of the potential things that they could be confronted with, somebody has thought of and written up in a story. And, and science fiction is essentially like a war game that somebody played in their head and in, a, in one to many. Um, so you can, you can learn a lot about potential interactions and causality and how a change in technology uh, could affect a series of things by reading science fiction. And I think that that creates the flexibility to be able to think through 
what if we were able to make this change? What things do I need to be thinking about? Or, or suppose this other actor did this bad thing. What would we have to think about? So that type of contingency, what if thinking is really advanced by that. And the other thing I would say is tabletop games and war games. I think, you know, particularly there's some phenomenal space themed things that guardians can really get a sense of everything from Delta V to learning curves to, you know, a lot of these games like Civilization will really give you a sense that, wow, creating industrial capacity early gives you this overwhelming might to crush the other guy. And, that, and so that kind of thinking, I think, can be very, very useful, as well as the technology tree planning, right? That's something that, in particular, playing real-time strategy games, I think, helps you with is a big problem for the U.S. Space Force in terms of maximizing U.S. power is thinking about the long-term tech tree and really thinking about what limits the United States has a space power today and how do we go knock those down? And then if we knock those down, how does that change the entire geopolitical game? Because you change one thing, you change many things. Well, you'll be pleased to know that Jason and I both took a course on sci-fi and strategy. <laughs> so some of, us are still, some of us are still reading sci-fi. And that kind of goes into our second closing question is if listeners are interested in learning more on space resources and great power competition, where can they go to learn more? Do you have any recommended books, articles, podcasts, anything like that? Yeah, so I mean, Scramble for the Skies is a great introduction with a huge number of references inside it. And, uh, and some of the references that are in there um, that I think are just outstanding, Dennis Wingo's Moonrush is a really terrific uh, introduction to the importance and geography of the moon. Another book called uh, Islands in Space, where Bob Zubrin is at least the editor or, or the author that gives you even further out. Um, John Lewis's two books on asteroid mining, Mining the Sky and Asteroid Mining 101, I think provide a, a, a terrific intro to, uh, uh, to those. And then for space solar power, probably uh, the John Mankin's Case for Space Solar Power or Mike Sneed's uh, Astroelectricity are two initial um, starting places. As far as podcasts, glad you guys highlighted mine. We'll be you know, restarting with some new content soon, and I will uh, look forward to bringing that to you guys. I'd actually say that among the best things you can, you can watch in order to get your head thinking about the future in ways that I think are helpful is Apple has a series called For All Mankind, which I think is a phenomenal exploration of geopolitics on the moon and sort of this alternate history. And then you know, like the first four seasons of The Expanse that are focused on the inner solar system, I think, uh, you know, really open up uh, your mind for, you know, where near term uh, changes could be that are pretty valuable. Jason, and I both really appreciate that you coming on and speaking to us today. And we're looking forward to reading your book. Yeah, thanks so much, Peter. And we'll link to all those references in the show notes so our listeners can, can find them easily. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Please give us a follow and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.